Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer, with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law, and with me, as always, Ellie Mistal. One has to question why I decided to take a sip of Coke right as you were saying hello. Well, you know, I kind of timed it that way, the same way that a wait staff always manages to come up to you right when your mouth's full to ask how the meal was. That's what I was trying to do. You, It succeeded. Yeah. I mean, I waited before I started the show until I saw that, that glimmer that you thought you were going to get a drink in without any <laughs> real trouble. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I am not so good. Well, I mean... Because... As an African-American male, Mm -hmm. I have been able to watch most of the Trump administration careen America down the toilet bowl with a sense of remove as most of the people who were destroying the country happened to be white. Right. There was a sense of camaraderie that, you know, you you had other people like you who weren't participating in exactly. this. Exactly. You know, I I don't have any racist uncles in my family who secretly voted for Trump. I come from black people. Yeah. So I feel like I have a sense of where this is going. Because today... Well, not necessarily today, sorry. because obviously this is pre-recorded. But now on everyone has day, a sense, yes. On the day that we are recording this... It is about two hours after Kanye West's performance in the Oval Office. So, okay, so that's this brings me to the question that I just want you to employ your thinking like a lawyer brain on. Okay, Kanye, Minstrel. Kanye West. Sorry, that wasn't the question. Well, I mean, it, in, in a certain sense, it was the question I was going for, which is at this point, Kanye West really believed these things, engaged in elaborate twenty first century. Andy Kaufman style performance art. I mean, you you want to hope that he's engaged in some kind of disgusting minstrel show, right? You want to hope that it is mere coonery, um, and I say mere <laughs> because that is the best version of events for him. In the same way that I know a lot of white people want to believe that Melania Trump is captured and needs to be freed as opposed to an active participant in this. Like you kind of want to believe that Kanye is in some ways trying to perform here. However, I think it's, I don't think it's that complicated. I don't think he's that um, interesting. I think instead the dumbest answer is true. If you looked at the the Occam's razor of, right. The Occam's razor of Kanye West is that Obama liked Jay-Z better. Right. Okay. And there's there's a aspect of this Oval Office meeting that happened a week ago. If you're listening to this, where Trump and Kanye are both in the Oval Office because Obama didn't like them, and like everything that's happened, in some small way, is because Obama thought that these people were jokes. Yeah. I mean, I I hear you. I here's my case for the performance art. Okay. I just really feel as though it's such a break from any previous statement that he's ever had before this and up to and obviously including his Hurricane Katrina remarks. And look, he's accomplished something, right? Like this has already accomplished something great, which is he's managed to take 
alt-right neo-Nazi icon, Taylor Swift, to the point where she was like, wait a minute. If he's with that guy, and now she's endorsing Democrats. Now, I don't know if you've read the right-wing media lately, but they're in pure meltdown. One of the lines I read was, a betrayal of the ultimate magnitude. They were so convinced that she was like some secret... Nazi poster Nazi girl. Nazi poster girl, as opposed to, you know, a relatively normal person who has just happened to be blonde. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so there, so he's accomplished something. I feel like that's what, uh, that's what we were after Ye to do. The Kanye Taylor Swift's Freaky Friday um, situation is one for the record books. Look, to be clear, <laughs> to be clear, everything that Kanye says is trash. Everything that he said in the Oval Office is trash. What we saw was a bipolar man who was off his medication. Which is, yes. Um, I mean, if that's true, that that is serious. Enough. And there's an aspect at which you're kind of sad for him as opposed to outraged by him. But, yeah, I can't shake this feeling that if Obama had just given him a hug, none of this would be happening. But then we wouldn't have the eye plane. <laughs> And with that, let's now move from the light frivolity that we had for a bit here uh, to something a little bit more serious. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about the criminal justice system, which ironically is something that Kim Kardashian is involved in quite a bit. Um, (laughs) uh, But we're going to talk about wrongful convictions. And with us, we have Professor Mark Godsey from University of Cincinnati Law School, but also the director of the Ohio Innocence Project and author of a book, Blind Injustice, which deals with basically wrongful convictions. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So wrongful convictions. Um, I I did just kind of preview that Kanye's uh, other half is spending some time talking about the pardons. The smarter and, half. Yeah. The, as it turns out, the, the smarter half, potentially. Uh, dealing with wrongful convictions. Like, for people who aren't really following all this, like, how big a problem is this in the system right now? Well, first of all, we'll take it any way we can get it. If she's going to meet with Trump on, on behalf of some of the clients, that's great. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a disconnect where the public thinks that we've got this criminal justice system with you know, all these constitutional rights, and you know, people generally think we have the best criminal justice system in the world. And the reality is that we've discovered in the past 25 years that there are many, many innocent people, far more than anybody would imagine, who end up being wrongfully convicted and sent to prison. I mean, the innocence movement has identified over 2,200 in the past 25 years. I think altogether they served more than 20,000 years in prison for crimes they didn't commit. And But we know this is just the tip of the iceberg um, because the vast majority of these people claiming innocence in prison don't have like you know DNA from their cases that can be tested. You have to be really, really lucky. So those 2,200 are people who were really, really lucky. And in every single one of those cases, you can say, you know, but for this coincidence or but for that coincidence, that person would still be sitting in prison probably for the rest of their life or on death row. I mean, it's amazing to think about that having been wrongfully convicted, you need luck to get out um, when all the bad luck fell on you to get in in the first place. Yeah, so many of these cases, you know, like it takes years to find the DNA, and we almost give up hope. And then it turns out that some court reporter from 30 years ago actually took it home and has been storing it in her basement. You know, some like just freaky coincidence like that. It's like, just imagine this person is freed on such luck. So one of the things, Mark, is that now we're living in this brave new world where apparently Republicans care about innocent until proven guilty. They care about due process all of a sudden, which is awesome. We've seen from the Mueller investigation that Republicans really, really care now 
about the overwhelming power of the state, what it can do to force people into confessions even of crimes that they clearly did not commit. Have you, in this kind of Trump era, have you seen any kind of uptick in support for your work from people on the right, from right of center people? Well, I'm going to answer that in a couple ways. First of all, I want to talk about Trump and the famous exoneration case called the Central Park Five. Um, uh, yeah, it was a very famous case, yeah. and they guys were wrongfully convicted of, of raping a, a jogger in Central Park that got you know national attention. And back at the time, Trump took out a full-page ad saying these guys should get the death penalty. Turns out later they're exonerated by DNA, and you know Trump has been in the forefront of saying I don't I don't accept it. I think they're still guilty. You know the city of New York should not have settled with these guys. They shouldn't have gotten any money. I mean it's just outrageous. But you know the Innocence Project and our movement has these different platforms of reform that we need done. And one of them is that snitch testimony, incentivized testimony needs to be limited. This is where somebody's cut a deal to testify against somebody else. You have one criminal who's given leniency to testify against somebody else, and that's a leading cause of wrongful conviction. It shouldn't be a surprise that a lot of these people are lying when they've been, you know, basically given a sweetheart deal if they testify against somebody else. And so it's ironic that Trump has been so outspoken against the innocence movement um, and using the Central Park Five as a vehicle for that. But as soon as Michael Cohen flips, or these other people flip and start giving information against <laughs> him, all of a sudden he's tweeting about the need for reform on snitch law. <laughs> so he'll, you know, he'll agree on the on the Innocence Project, Innocence Movement's platform for things that apply to him. You know, it's just ironic how hypocritical it is. Um, yeah. I have to be completely honest with you, and I talk about this in the book. At least in Ohio, the Republicans have been pretty open to the reforms that we've pushed. You know, we've had bipartisan support for a lot of our bills. I think a lot of people would go into it and say this is a, a left-wing issue. Innocent people out of prison is really bipartisan. Nobody wants to have an innocent person in prison. Obviously, in the recent political climate, people are taking positions having more to do with what their political persuasion is and what benefits their party. But, you know, I think most people in the innocence movement will tell you that down on the ground at a local level, it has more to do with just the individual personalities involved than really party affiliation. Hmm. Now, on that note, though, talking about on the ground and a little bit into the um, kind of dancing around the issue of it being a political question is one thing that's discussed in the book and, and other elsewhere is like we elect people to be judges and prosecutors and sheriffs. Yeah. And oftentimes those elections go along the lines of I'm, you know, X, Y, Z party and therefore i am tough on crime i won't let this go and like and so the other guy says i'm tougher on yeah, crime right and, that's and, exactly right yeah and and to some extent though that those do fall somewhat left righty the right tends to win that i'm tougher so even though on the ground people seem to care more about individuals you say like we also have at the very bottom level of municipal government officials who view their party identity as being as tough as possible and as anti excuse as possible. And that kind of translates itself sometimes into pushing forward where maybe the evidence doesn't really justify. Well, let me just tell you how I think that plays out. I mean, if I, if I could change one thing, I would change so that judges and prosecutors are not elected. I mean, it, it mm -hmm. just politicizes cases so much. And, you know, the public is bloodthirsty for punishing criminals. And so politicians, and that's what they are, these people that are running, they learn that they have to tote this campaign cry of I'm tough on crime and I'm tougher than him and everything else. So th that entire thing is just contaminating 
to justice. It, it undermines justice in so many ways. So when we have evidence that somebody's innocent, they've been wrongfully convicted, so many times we have prosecutors like refusing to admit a mistake and um, you know, they don't want to let somebody out and agree that they're innocent, let them out, then have them commit a crime. They're worried they're going to have their next Willie Horton, you know, which is what the first Bush used against Dukakis back in the election. Everybody's scared of that. Like, I don't want my Willie Horton, you know, where Dukakis was governor and he let him out and he ended up committing another crime and then it came back to haunt his political career. Let him out. He let him out on parole. Just well, for a lot. Yeah, yeah. For a lot, for a lot. Yeah. So anyway, that is like the, the uh, Horton sort of haunts all these politicians. But, you know, the funny thing that I've seen and I write about this in the book, and I've had many other people in the instance movement confirm this, I often get more reasonable responses from Republicans on the ground because their party has already given the benefit of the doubt that they're tough on crime. And so you'll get some of these Democrats who are sort of have a chip on their shoulder and are insecure about their tough on crime creds, who sort of have a Napoleon complex and are walking around, you know, beating their chest and, and trying to, you know, really act super tough on crime, and they have to overdo it because they're a Democrat. And so some of the most unreasonable prosecutors and judges I've run across are Democrats. And so that to me, that's, that was very surprising. And, you know, a lot of times I'll get in these conversations trying to talk reasonably with a Republican judge or a Republican prosecutor, and you don't sense that same urgency of, of political, you know, I've got I've to act tough. And I think that's sort of like a reverse psychology thing. It's like not what you expect, but it's, it's again, Democrats often believe they're not given the benefit of the doubt, so they're sort of overdoing it, which is very sad. That's an amazing point. I mean, if yeah. you think about it, that was that was what a lot of the mid '90s was at the yeah. federal level, like the death penalty acts and stuff. Oh, exactly. I mean, Bill Clinton is one of the worst presidents for criminal justice reform ever. I mean, some of the stuff that he mm-hmm. promulgated and the three strikes you're out and the, 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 you know the habeas reform that makes mm-hmm. it almost impossible for innocent people to get out of prison now. Um, he was horrible. You know, and in, in the last election, you know, Hillary was still in favor of the death penalty. It's like, who's in favor of the death penalty in this day and age, especially if you're a Democrat? So, you know. Not the state of Washington, it turns out. Yeah, the state of Washington I got like rid it, of it, it today. But, you know, so it's, it's not always what you think in terms of how things line up on party lines. And I do think that just that stance came back to haunt her a bit in the election because I think that's one of the reasons why she didn't have – the kind of African-American turnout um, that Obama enjoyed. It wasn't just because she was a white lady. I think it was because of her stance um, on some of these reform issues. I have lots of problems with Democrats on their commitment to criminal justice reform. I like to tell a story that I was polled earlier uh, this year at the local level for like state legislator. You know, the pollster asked me you know, what my top issue was and gave me a list of 13 issues. And criminal justice reform was not one of them. So I say... I'm African-American, and criminal justice reform would be my top one. And the pollster literally says, oh, that's not on my list. And I basically lost my shit on Twitter. Wow. (laughs) It was amazing. Mark, I want to ask, excuse me for kind of legal geeking out a little bit, but what role do you feel our kind of judicial understanding of finality plays into all of this? One of the issues that I feel is, is going on is that the system is so over the top concerned with having a final judgment and that that needs to end forever discussion. And so then reopening and reexamining cases becomes so hard. Are there any prescriptions for that? Or is there any way that we can loosen the final closing of the door? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, we've had this belief, societal belief that we're really good at solving crimes and that we convict somebody, you know, we're 100% certain that they're guilty. And so that plays into finality. So you know, we're not worried about having hardcore finality because all these people are clearly guilty. And that's been proven wrong. And we've also learned that in the process that humans are quite – 
valuable. They don't, they're not very good at reconstructing the past and that we suffer from tunnel vision and confirmation bias and all these other things that lead to human error. And so I think once you really study the system, once you really study the causes of wrongful conviction, it starts to make sense why there's so much error because it's, you know, we're, we're human beings and, and we're not perfect. And so I think the system has got to recognize that, you know, yes, finality is important in a sense, but so is freedom. Um, and we've got to be open long-term to re-examining old cases and open to admitting mistakes. But it's, it's even more than that. I mean, I think it's less a concern, uh, you know, policy concern for finality than it is simple cognitive dissonance and denial. I mean, I think most of the time prosecutors are just so convinced that the guy's innocent, and they've been thinking that for so long that they have a hard time actually even processing the new information in an objective way. And so many times they're going to court fighting us and trying to keep a guy in prison after we've already you know, demonstrated the person's innocent with these sort of crazy theories as to how the, ev- the pieces of evidence can still fit together in a way to justify their conclusion. And you want to step back and you want to go like, you know, are you serious here? Like, this is so far-fetched. But I think what we're seeing is people who are just so bought into it that they have a hard time stepping back and being objective. And so I think many times they're espousing these crazy theories in court, but they actually believe them. Yeah, in the book you talk a lot about, it's very psychological, the focus of a lot of your writing. Mm-hmm. Like it's, like you mentioned in that last segment there, you talked about like confirmation biases and stuff like that. You get kind of the sense through your work that we're almost hardwired to make terrible decisions. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> does that sound right? Yeah, and the funny thing is we think the exact opposite. But human beings are pretty bad at staying objective and evaluating evidence evenly and coming to a fair conclusion. We get caught up in our theories, we get tunnel vision, we get confirmation bias, investigations go completely awry, and we really don't recognize how problematic that is or to the extent we do it. You know, we talk about this stuff a lot as if it's, you know, even I talk about it um, kind of very clearly as an African-American issue because the the burden of wrongful convictions so disproportionately falls on the African-American community, on male African-Americans in particular. Do you think that, so one of the kind of, again, legalistic arguments here, the question is, is this happening? Do we wrongfully jail so many people because they're African-American? Or do you believe that the system is broken and in the way that the system is broken, African-Americans disproportionately face the burden of that broken system. Do you understand what I'm asking? Yeah, I think it's the second. I mean, I think the system's broken. I think it's operating based on an understanding of the human mind from the 1800s, and it needs serious updating and reform to better reflect human weaknesses. And I think any time you have a system that's sort of broken and it's going to be spitting out these errors, you know, that's going to be, everyone's going to be subjected to that at a certain, you know, if there's 4% error rate, you know, that's going to be, 4% 4% of the people are going to be wrongfully convicted. I'm just throwing out that number as an example. But I think you've got, you know, actual racism and then, you know, implicit bias playing into that, which just skews it further to the disadvantage of African Americans. I mean, people are going to, you know, if, if there's direct racism involved, obviously that's going to impact a, a specific case. But, you know, then you've got implicit bias and you've, you've got a million different factors going on, which I think causes it to disproportionately um, impact African Americans. One aspect of your bio that's that's interesting in light of what you do now is you were a prosecutor yourself. Yeah. I think I'm one of the only ones in the innocence movement now that served a significant time as a prosecutor. And I mean, that's how I started off the book is that, you know, I, I basically came into this work by accident. I had a very much prosecutor's mentality 
And I went into academia to become a law professor. And the first law school that I taught at had an innocence project already. And the professor who ran it was on sabbatical that year. So the dean's sort of like, well, you've got this criminal investigation background as a prosecutor, so you're going to run this. And, you know, I'm on, I'm on tenured. I uh, can't really say no, but I was, and this is what I explained in the book, I was really sort of sarcastic about it. Like, oh, yeah, you're right. Like, there's innocent people in prison. And I remember sitting at the first meeting, and the students had just visited this inmate in prison, and we're talking about how he's innocent and how terrible this is that he's in prison. And I was like doing internal eye rolls and just like, oh, yeah, right. You know, I asked him questions about the case, and I was just being very dismissive. And it turns out that we did DNA testing, and he was innocent. So it was a huge eye-opening experience for me. Um, shortly after that, I went to the national conference where I met exonerees from around the country and you know, heard speeches about the causes of wrongful conviction. I sort of gradually came to this, this realization that you know, I had this prosecutorial mindset. I'd been in denial about a lot of problems in the system. Um, so the next year, I got the job at the University of Cincinnati, and Ohio didn't have an innocence project yet, so I helped co-found that one. So far, we've gotten 27 people out who together served over 500 years in prison for crimes they didn't commit. And so, you know, I think having that background, and, uh, and that's what I talk about in the book, like I, I will talk about cases of my clients who are innocent and what happened to them and what the prosecutors and police did, and then reflect on how I did those same things when I was a prosecutor um, and the, the kind of training we need to, to have to combat that mentality. Yeah. What kind of reparations should we make to the people who are, who are exonerated? Well, I mean... How do you possibly give, you know, our client, Ricky Jackson, 39 years, he set a national record when he get it, got out for the longest serving person to be exonerated. How do you give that back to him? I mean, obviously, the only thing you can do is financial compensation to make him comfortable and that he doesn't have to worry about at least money and living and food. You know, many of these guys, all they want on top of that is an apology. And many times they don't get it. <laughs> So a lot of it's psychological. It's ironic that, you know, if you're, if you're guilty and you get out after 20 years on parole, there's a lot of services available to you. You know, if you have substance abuse problems or you need to help getting trained for a job, you know, the system has these things. If you do 20 years and you get out because you're innocent, you don't fall within the parole guidelines. You're not on parole. So you don't have the same access to the same services. So compensation and making sure they get the, the <laughs> Sorry, we're just here in the office like, son of a bitch. Yeah, yeah no, never, never would have thought of that. Yeah. I mean, the, the laws say, you know, if you get out on parole and you can do this and that, well, it doesn't apply to me. You go and try to have those services, they go, oh, you don't qualify. <laughs> I mean, it's just so totally ironic. I mean, it makes sense. Like, like, it makes sense why the statute would be that way. I just, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, really they didn't nice. envision that this would happen when they drafted these things. Man. Okay, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Stick with me a little I mean, bit longer. Because honestly, it just it, the picture you paint, your work, the work of the Innocence Project in general, the picture you guys paint, it just, it feels hopeless. It, it feels like there's nothing that you can do. It feels like all, or, or maybe a better way of putting it, it feels like all you can do is to save one or two or five people as you come across them, but to engender the massive systemic changes that are necessary, how does that ever happen? Well, I mean, you have to have the right mentality. So what I've come to realize is, that this is a, a multi-decade civil rights movement. You know, I went to high school in the early 80s, and, you know, homophobia was so widespread that I remember in speech class, a kid gave a speech about homophobia, and nobody batted an eye, you know, about how he doesn't like gay people. Like, you know, you can't do that now, thank God. And, and nobody in, in the 80s could have envisioned the massive societal changes and views about gay rights or even that marijuana would be legalized. 
I mean, you know, people thought marijuana was, you know, the gateway drug and you're going to be dead in a month if you even try it. And that's what parents preached to them. So, I mean, there's, we've seen these other areas where there's been huge societal change, but it just takes people yelling and screaming for a really long time. That's what we're doing. And it's the right answer. It's going to win. But large bureaucracies are very slow to change and changing the views of, of huge populations is, is very slow. And so we have to realize we're in it for the long haul and it's going to happen. Um, it's going to happen in my lifetime, hopefully. But you can't look at it as a short term. There'll be this big moment that everybody wakes up and then everybody's on the same page and we change it overnight. It's going to be very slow. Do you think we need national action? And I'm just thinking of this because uh, you mentioned the LGBT movement. Do you think we need national action? Or do you think that we're better off using federalism and, and starting in the states that are you know more amenable to this and working our way up to Mississippi? You know, like yeah. Which approach do you prefer? Everything, everything we can get all at the same time. I mean, for example, one of the things <laughs> that we've learned is that the state of forensics in this country is a joke, and we're convicting people with junk science. It's unverified. So the National Academy of Sciences came out with a report in 2009 calling for all this reform, and that's obviously a national agency. It advises Congress on issues of science. And so after that report came out, it took a few years to work through the Obama administration, and eventually we got recommendations right at the end of his term to create an institute to come up with new standards for forensics so we can stop convicting people with junk science. And then Trump got into office and he in sessions defunded it. So that shows an example. We were on the right path, and that would, you know, having these national forensic standards would be extremely helpful. That's something that's going to happen again in the future. So that's an example of where, you know, there's so many different states doing it so many different ways that just having one set of national standards is extremely helpful. We will get there. But at the same time, you know, changing minds one at a time on the ground is, is extremely effective too. I mean, we've got the end of October this month, the first ever prosecutor summit on wrongful convictions where the, oh, the Ohio Innocence Project is co-sponsoring it with the county prosecutors in Cleveland. That would have been unheard of a decade ago. And we're inviting prosecutors from all across the state to come and learn about wrongful convictions and how they can make reforms. Will it be, you know, everybody sitting around together holding hands and singing Kumbaya and, and you know, eating ice cream and petting puppies? No, not everybody will be on the same page, but the conversation is starting. And again, that's not something we could have envisioned 10 years ago. On December 6th, I've been invited to come by the county prosecutor in Columbus, Ohio, to give a lecture on wrongful convictions and to all of the prosecutors in his office and how they can do better. That's what we need to be doing. We're starting to see things like that now. Um, that would have been unheard of 10 years ago or even five years ago. So it's a slow movement. Um, national, federal stuff helps, but you know, yelling and screaming on the ground and educating is going to make a difference too. Yeah. I mean, I, 20 years ago, I thought that Marissa Tomei was an expert in forensic <laughs> science. Um, well, she is by, <laughs> by current standards. That's what we got to change. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. This, is, uh, this has been amazing. That's Professor Mark Godsey. He's the director of the Ohio Innocence Project and author of Blind Injustice. Thanks for joining us. This was incredibly informative. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me on. And thank you all for listening. You should give us reviews, however you get your podcast delivered to you. Uh, write up a review. Don't just give us stars. The more data that's there, the more it moves up algorithms, uh, assuming you are subscribed to us, which you should also be. You should be reading Above the Law. You should be following at L-E-N-Y-C. You should be following at Joseph Patrice. You should what? Please follow me. I need more help fighting Tucker Carlson trolls on my thread. Yes, uh, he does. And you should listen to other shows in the Above the Law world, which are we have uh, the Jabot and 
the other one that's about laterals. The other uh, one. Yeah, and the other one. And you should also listen to the various shows on the Legal Talk Network, including On the Road, which I occasionally host. And with that, I think we've said everything we need to say. We'll talk to you all later. Peace. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. And uh, thank you all for listening. And we will, uh, and you should um, thank you all for listening. And you should give us reviews. Thank you. Right. Oh. That is amazing. That's happening right now. All right. uh, This is happening. Jilla, go ahead and keep rolling. I'll call you back here. Okay. (laughs)